today coming down here, I was sitting on the subway and I was rereading Kim's beautiful libretto. And these little girls came and sat next to me. There was about 12 or 15 kids from first grade on a school trip. And the one little girl started looking over my shoulder. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm reading a story. And I said, do you like to read? And she started to tell me all her favorite books. And then she said, well, what are you doing today? I said, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm making a recording. She said, well, really? What's it about? So I said, well, I'm writing an opera. Do you know what that is? And so she sat there and go, la, 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 like that, and gesturing with her hands. And she said, what's it about? Is it a good story? So I explained the story of Postville, and I told her who all the characters were that Kim had created. And they started asking questions. And so I'm explaining about Linda Morales. And she, I said, do you know what an immigrant is? So we had a conversation about people who come from other countries to come to this country to live and work here. And some of the time they aren't given citizenship. And this is a story about a community where different people came and they were right there in it. Then when I was getting ready to uh-huh. pack my bag, she said, well, can't you read it to us? I said, why don't you read it to me? So she started reading it, oh and gosh. she wanted to know what Agricultural Days was. <laughs> right. So I explained that it starts with a, a woman from the town who's concerned about what's happened to the town, and they're coming together. And she said, but this is an opera. Can't you sing it? <laughs> and I said, I haven't written the music yet, but I'll make some up now. So I started singing the first lines of the libretto. Wow. God help everybody. (laughs) People gathered, you know, people with their coffee cups, people reading their phones. And all of a sudden, everybody around of, I could guarantee, several different countries and probably several immigrants, everybody's watching me pathetically singing to these little girls. And I thought, we've got the beginning of an opera here. And as I was getting up to leave, the other little girl looked at me and said, is this for kids? And I said, it is, but it's for all voices. In January of 2016, opera companies from all over the United States started a conversation. Trying to figure out how to create new works for smaller stages, alternative spaces, and major opera companies. Could we develop works that speak to a broader audience? And how can we be the leaders in showing that diversity is a huge plus? Opera for All Voices, will that resonate? What if we fail? Of course we're going to fail. That's how we learn. What if we succeed? Then we have a lot more work to do. What if we keep imagining? It's infinite. I'm Andrea Fellows-Walters with the Santa Fe Opera. And I'm Brandon Neal with the Santa Fe Opera. And this is Key Change. A podcast taking you inside Opera for All Voices. An initiative to commission and produce new opera. In today's episode, we dive deeper into Postville, the commission with Laura Kaminsky as composer and Kimberly Reed librettist. This opera will premiere with San Francisco Opera in 2020. What I love about Postville is how strikingly different it is from Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun. I think that's been one of the revelations of this whole project is yeah. that they're so very different from one another. Oh, my gosh. Postville's grounded in in truth and in reality and in a community that was disrupted by, right. by a raid, an immigration raid, an right. ICE raid, and the fallout from that. Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun is totally in the realm of, of the imagination and the fanciful. So in that Absolutely. way, they're very different. Very, very different. I think the one thing that intrigues me the most about 
Postville is its brutal honesty with these emotions, with these characters. Because Sweet Potato is like light, a little lighter. Well, it's allegorical. They're very, yes. very real issues in Sweet Potato very, too. Very, yeah, very much so. But, it, but Postville is just like, oh, in the gut, in the heart. Like you feel it. You feel it all the way through. And I think that it's just an testament to how Laura writes and how Kim writes and the stories that they are very attracted to. It's very documentary feel like you're walking into someone's home and you're experiencing what they're experiencing. And I think that's why I like it. It's very intimate. It is. And however, there's still a lightness to it because this is not 60 minutes. I mean, we're not. Oh, no, 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 no. Nothing like that. I'm just so excited about Postville because I feel like some of the things that are lacking when I want to go see new works is I don't see characters that that I respond to. Mm. But when I read about these three characters in this piece and how the piece is structured and what's going on in today's society and what will continue to go on when this work premieres, I just find it so refreshing. I'm curious to see how Kim and Laura represent these different cultures without it being tropically... That they find a new way to express that these people are of different cultures. What's the motto of the city? I know we've talked about it before. Hometown to the world. Hometown to the world. How does that manifest in an opera? And how does that manifest sonically? What is hometown to the world? What is the motive of that? I'm really curious to see how Laura will find that and express that and torque it and move it in all sorts of different directions. Well, if anyone can capture that, that's Laura Kaminsky. I think so, too. So not only were Brandon and I really taken with Laura and Kimberly as artists, we were really taken with the story of Postville that they had brought to our attention. And we put it aside for a while because the story itself just felt perhaps bigger than what we had conceived of for Opera for All Voices. We're so glad that they agreed to revisit the story. And now it is one of the commissions that launched this initiative. We sat down with Kimberly and Laura and Ruth Knott from San Francisco Opera joined us in the conversation. Laura was the first one to tell me about this magnificent story of Postville. I had heard little snippets from different angles over the years, but it wasn't until um, she really started talking about the project that I really started to dig in and discover that in many ways, the story of Postville is the story of America, the story of immigrants, people who think they belong in a place and people who think that other people don't belong. The thing I think that drew me at first to the story was just that it's such a a story of of contrasts that kind of at the crux of the story is this decision in the 80s with some Lubavitcher Jews from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, deciding that they want to open a kosher meatpacking plant in the middle of Iowa. And that initial contrast between these two groups of people, there would be the, all of these group dynamics between a bunch of Hasidic Jews and these predominantly Lutheran, predominantly German farmers mm-hmm. was really interesting. And then you start adding in the fact that in order to make this kosher slaughterhouse work, they needed a lot of 
labor, yes. which ended up being, for the period that we're talking about, Guatemalan. Many of them imported, mm-hmm. um, some of them having, you know, found their way there. And as it happens with these immigration patterns, you know, you just get the, a couple people from a particular country or ethnic group show up and then a couple, then some of their friends and family come and all of a sudden you have an outpost or you have a cultural presence. And the town starts to change the way the town looks. Yeah. So to see this wonderful combination of Hasidic Jews and some German Lutheran farmers and Guatemalan laborers, most of whom had a religious element there too, which was Catholic, although many of them were Mayan. It just felt like, at first glance, frankly, I didn't know how we were going to get our hands around this <laughs> story because it's such a big story and we have, we're trying to do it with three Well, and that's in part actors. why you all didn't propose the project in the first place. My sister works in immigrant affairs and was very closely involved with the aftermath of the ICE raid in yes. Postville. So this was a story that loomed large in my life and I had sort of imagined if I ever wrote a grand opera, this would be that story. And I had mentioned it as a concept to Kim when we were tossing ideas about it. I was like, well, this is too big. Well, I know you did not actually submit it, but you and I had had a conversation about it, and it just stayed with me. Yeah. Fact, when Laura caught back up with me after I had introduced the possibility of us going back to Postville, I was in the parking lot of Trader Joe's in Albuquerque with my children in tow and felt that this moment was so important that... I put them back in the car and stood in the parking lot and had a conversation with Laura to revisit what it was exactly that stayed with me. And that was Laura's passion for this story and the way she described it and the way she talked about it. I didn't let it go. I'm thrilled. And of course, Kim's fertile imagination allowed her to take what is, you know, a grand epic film, you know, like What was that one with Charlton Heston, you know, that we all think of? The Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments, you know, that kind of scope. (laughs) Right. And bring it down to three people in a room having prayer, you know. The distillation. The distillation. Thank you. That's exactly the word. And and that she was able to create these, these fully fleshed characters that it's all about people as individuals who've lived in this community, in this world, and you start to see things, you know, the personal is political. You understand yes. it in its grand form by its intimacy. And I just, I loved the way you approached it. Wasn't there some irony that it's an opera, but we're talking about the quiet moments? I mean, I would have to say now that this is, yeah. this is our fourth <laughs> this opera. This is our fourth. And, and this is probably for me as a composer, and it may be a very different answer for you, Kim. But for me, I think in all of the operas I've written, It's always those quietest moments that are the most powerful for me and the ones that they sort of allow you inside Mm. as a listener, as an audience member, in a way that the spectacle, the grandiosity of opera is more external. And it's when you take that big picture and you distill it to that personal moment or that moment of engagement and strip away everything else that gets deep in the heart. And I think that that's, I don't seek that consciously as I'm writing, but those are usually when I'm in my studio and I'm living with the words, those are moments like, oh, I know, I know that people are going to feel these people being real here because it's not declamatory or archetypal or epic. 
it's small. And that welcomes people, welcomes the audience in. I was thinking that we use the phrase when words fail, but it's not that words fail. It's just that words get us to a point and then music steps in to take us further. Especially in opera. And when dealing with these characters, each of whom is coming from a different religious background, you can't talk about the history of music without talking about religion and the history of religion. And knowing Laura's facility with these different musical strains, it was really fun to imagine creating these characters and putting these characters in these situations where they are each bringing their own religious and ethnic and cultural traditions to the table. And then uh, I saw it as kind of a project to let them intertwine, let these different histories and cultures swirl with each other. And I just knew that Laura would resolve much of the drama musically in a way that we didn't have to be really didactic talking about yeah. the you know ways that we can live together as people. I think it's America at its best. And I think this is a real American story in that sense. But when you uh, kind of stand and wag your finger and tell these groups of people that they need to be nice to each other, it right. doesn't really... It hasn't uh, proven to be effective in the yeah, past. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody learns anything from that. But if you can take these traditions and take their heritage and let them swirl together musically like the story of Postville you know that was that was the real project here it doesn't always work out perfectly it's very difficult there's a lot of challenges and it's not you know this perfectly utopian place there was a lot of conflict in Postville but at its best I think that that's that's what we can do and hopefully that's what what comes through in the opera so I'm also remembering the, our little tagline of hometown to the world. On the sign coming the in sign the Postville, it says, you know, Postville, hometown to the world, which they had in, in place, I believe, before all of, we haven't really talked about the, the defining moment in Postville, in the opera as well, even though everything takes place in the wake of this defining moment. Mm-hmm. And that defining moment is this immigration, customs, enforcement, also known as ICE, Mm -hmm. this ICE raid of the, it was called agri-processors slaughterhouse. Overnight, about a quarter of the town was deported. They were treated in an abysmal fashion, like cattle literally herding people into the, into buildings at the fairgrounds that had only ever been used for for that have been appropriated for this purpose. Yeah, that wow. had been specially set up by ICE for this. So the people were processed. The people were essentially exactly. processed, right. yeah. Oh. Yeah, they were um, kind of shackled together in groups of 10 and marched through this process that had not been seen before. Normally, the prosecution of these matters was a misdemeanor, and people would have to admit to a misdemeanor and would then be deported and This was a real crackdown in the final stages of uh, the Bush administration in in 2008. In an effort to get tough, they basically decided that they were going to give all of these immigrants who were being charged a choice between two really awful choices, both of which were felonies. The good choice was to admit to falsifying records, which would be a felony, even though there was a misdemeanor way out of that. But in this case, they chose the felony route. 
and to have people spend five months in detention and then and then be deported after that. And this giving the immigrants these two really terrible choices was something that was new. And the upshot of it was that overnight, about a quarter of the town is gone. That means that about half of the town ends up leaving because everybody else is, is following those folks out right. of town. And uh, that led to this situation where the lifeblood of the community, which was this kosher meat packing plant, all of a sudden didn't have anybody to work there. Mm -hmm. And the whole economic infrastructure of the city just collapsed. You know, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, classic, the contradiction in terms of the evil empire that also is the savior. Mm. Because this town had been virtually dying and bankrupt until this community came in and built up the meat processing plant and it started to have a more vibrant life as a community. There were more, you know, residents, there were more tax dollars. The downtown actually looked a little bit like a New York City downtown Hmm. because there were shops and restaurants catering to all of these different cultures and communities that would never have come together. And so that was the good of it. And then the bad of it was that there were labor abuse practices. The undocumented workers, of course, lived in fear. There were some concerns about the actual animal practices, although kosher slaughtering practices are considered quite humane. I'm sure there are cost-cutting measures that make them less humane. That leads to Kim's interesting and rather right. brilliant choice to bring in a fourth character. Yes. Maybe you'd like to talk about yeah. where you came on that one, Temple Grandin. I, it was just so surprising. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a challenge to tell the story with three actors. So to have a fourth character that could be played by one of the actors uh, doubling with a, with a second role was fun to conceptualize. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Challenging, but let's make it be fun. It was fun because, I mean, this is a pretty heavy story. Yeah. And one of the most bizarre twists in the story for me was discovering that Temple Grandin, the pretty famous animal rights activist who is autistic and uses her understanding of the world to basically speak for animals in a lot of ways. That's how she sees her role. She feels like her being on this spectrum that's her experience, agitation, essentially, in the same way that a lot of animals do. And she takes it as her project to keep these animals from being agitated right before we take their lives. One way or another, she made her way to Postville mm-hmm. to actually you know, do inspections of the facility and was commenting on it. She had found a lot of abuses and um, you know, her feedback on what was going on at Postville really led to a lot of reforms in the way that they treated the animals there. I'm just going to jump in and yes, say uh-huh. that I think one of the one of the many great benefits I have in working with Kim as a collaborator is that not only is she a great writer, but she's a filmmaker first and foremost. So for one thing, her visual sense is so great. And for me as a composer, I'm actually a visual processor. So I don't hear my music, I see it. Okay. And with Kim, everything's so visual that we're kind of talking the same language and it gives me my music. 
And also, you know exactly when I need to edit something, like down to the <laughs> quarter of a second. It's really great. She's like, mm, I think you have like an extra beat there. And it's absolutely about that moment in a film when you cut away and the next thing happens. And if it's too long, you've lost it. Mm-hmm. She timing. keeps me honest. The right timing. It's that timing thing. <laughs> because you're a documentarian, as you did with your most recent film, Dark Money, you thought you were telling one story. And mm. in your research, you go off on another path and start discovering other things and that informs the original story but changes it and it informs that change and then the next bit of research informs the next change and in your research on the history of the town and all the different communities and all the issues around slaughterhouses that's when you discovered the Temple Grandin connection and that just opened up a whole world and I bet there isn't another librettist in the world that would have come up with that. <laughs> I'm wondering if you, if you, Laura, could think about back to the beginning when we started talking with you about the Opera for All Voices project and the process by which we did finally come to the idea of doing Postville. But there were all these other ideas first and then things changed. You know, I'm happy to do all those other ideas, too. Yes. I, I'm sort of like, there's so many great stories to tell. But I think one of the exciting challenges that you, the commissioning team, posed to Kim and me is that this is opera for all voices, and there are only going to be three singer characters, actors. Mm-hmm. Now we've created four roles for those three, so we already broke that rule. But the other issue was that it's for all voices and that And this is such an epic story, but we're telling it in an intimate way about these relationships. But that in some versions or some productions, there's a desire to actually have all voices and bring in chorus. Yes. And so first I was thinking, well, could we write scenes that there'd be a big chorus, but it could really be okay if only three people sang it? And it was like, that just didn't feel like it would work emotionally. Like Mm -hmm. you could find a technical musical solution to that. Right. But I felt like that would fall flat. I couldn't imagine the power of the many really being able to be articulated by the three voices. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, well, what if we created a structure whereby there could be a chorus that was extractable and place inable? Mm -hmm. I I just lost my language there. (laughs) Um, And so we talked about a prologue and an epilogue that are standalones. And first we thought they could conceivably be the day of the raid or the newscasts Mm -hmm. or, you know. And then Kim came up with a really brilliant prologue that just sets kind of a spiritual tone for the piece. But if it doesn't get performed at a given production, the opera remains intact. If it does, it just provides a different sensibility of how you enter into the intimate story. And so that was really exciting. But then you gave one scene, which has almost no libretto in the traditional Uh sense, but a lot of beautiful description and image, which will give me a, a huge amount of freedom which I am going to be able, I think, to write for just the three singers or for three singers with insertable chorus that won't affect how rehearsals work or production works or any of that. So it allows this weaving of all voices in the instances where that's possible or just our three and that both iterations of the piece can be complete. Sounds like once you freed yourself from having to find those moments, the moment manifested. 
yeah, that big challenge that we've given you and the other teams of write us a piece for some opera companies that have chorus and some that can't do that. So that thank you for yeah, we, and for the thinking uh, of inventive ways to make that work. Oh, I just had an idea. This is probably <laughs> not a good. This is maybe not a good idea, but. Um, <laughs> When you're telling someone else's story, you have to be true to who they are. And when you don't come from that population or that ethnicity or have any experience with that background, you really have to do the proper research. And Kim being such a great documentarian in her other part of her life, it really adds to what this story can be. Because this piece, and you've talked a lot about this, is involving so many other cultures and traditions that maybe aren't your cultures and traditions. Can you talk a little bit about how you're addressing that in the development of the piece? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really important question to keep in mind, I think, as we approach telling stories about cultures, ethnicities, religions that are not our own. I think that this is really a story about culture in a lot of ways and how cultures interact. And I found my foothold coming from one of those ethnic groups. I mean, my father, my grandfather were those Norwegian farmers. Mm -hmm. um, some of the research I did for this was, was to talk to my stepfather who told me all about the kosher meat packing plants that he grew up with when mm -hmm. he was, grew up on a farm in the middle of Iowa. So, you know, coming from that position, I think, gave me a way to approach this story. Laura's Jewish. Mm -hmm. I'm not. We had conversations about about that. I tried to solicit as much feedback and kind of technical reads from people who come from these different areas. I ran it past people who were raised Hasidic. And I actually know the filmmaker who made a documentary about Postville and he's a consultant on the project. Louis Sargeta. And I knew him because my sister works in immigrant affairs and helped him when he was making his film about Postville years ago. And Kim and I, with Mark Campbell, were writing our first opera as one. Mm. And so I helped produce the film that he wrote. Right. Every character in Kim's libretto is out of her mind other than Temple Grandin, who's a real person. So we're not doing a documentary. This isn't that kind of a, a story that we're telling. I am a secular humanist Jew, so I don't know much other than knowing as a New Yorker. And also my mom is from London, and the neighborhood in London that my family lives in has increasingly become a Hasidic community over the years. So I've seen that world up close, but I think my my first entry into Hasidism was through the writings of Chaim Potok yes. when I was a child. That was also, it was about a boy in the Hasidic family who kind of was an artist and didn't really fit in. Mm -hmm. So that resonated. And then the Lutheran part isn't quite the same as the Anglican church, but I grew up with that mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, I not of any of these communities. And I'm not taking any of that music. I'm trying to find in my music something that honors the spirits 
of all of these peoples and spiritualities and sounds to create our own sound world that is true and resonant for the piece. And that's such an important word, honor, because whoever approaches this story, you know, may fall into one of these groups that we've talked about, but nobody's going to be in all of them. (laughs) And so in many ways, this story is about people approaching and honoring these other cultures that they are interacting with. So it's about, I think it is about that approach, that initial, allowing that discussion to happen, allowing that cultural exchange to happen. And and I think, again, this is not a documentary. This is a fictional... Because Luis has done that. He's even created... He's he's created And there's a second documentary of this as well. Yes, which I've seen called U-Turn, about what's happened to those who were deported who did come back mm-hmm. and and all the legal issues. And this is a conversation we need to be having more now, particularly in this administration, mm-hmm. about how we're handling immigration in this country. But I think that we have to remember, this is opera, fantasy. I mean, storytelling. De- you know, mm-hmm. storytelling. I mean, surreal things happen mm-hmm. in opera. So we're taking something real and distilling from it really a human story and a story about kind of humanity and ethics that supersedes where somebody comes from, what language they speak, who they pray to. It's about how do we engage with each other? What do we do when we don't understand each other? What do we do when there are power imbalances? Mm. How do societies mingle and care for each other? That's what it's about. What That's do we do what when I'm there's talking. There's a significant disruption. And when there's a significant disruption. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that for me, the big political and social issues are best revealed through the intimate. Mm. The conversation, if I may tell, between Linda Morales and Abraham Fleischman when they have an argument and have to find their way into understanding each other, well, that's a universal human engagement. We're telling it through the backdrop of this particular moment in history, in this country, of something shameful that happened in Postville, Iowa. But we could transpose that and give them different names and different backdrop, and it's the same human story. Mm. And and that's the power, I think, of, of a piece like this. On the next episode of Key Change, we reach cruising altitude. Brandon Neal in conversation with Charles McKay, general director of the Santa Fe Opera for the last 10 years, who has a tenure of 50 years in opera. Key Change is a production of the Santa Fe Opera in collaboration with Opera for All Voices. We are produced and edited by Andrea Clunder at the Creative Imposter Studios. Our hosts are me, Andrea Fellows-Walters, and Brandon Neal. Our audio engineer is Cabby at Cabby Sound Studios in Santa Fe. Theme music by Renee Orth, cover art by David Towsley. This podcast is made possible due to the generous funding from the Melville Hankins Family Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and an Opera America Innovation Grant supported by the Anne and Gordon Getty Foundation. Special thanks to The Relic Room in New York City. To learn more about Opera for All Voices, visit us at santafeopera.org. If an opera is performed in a forest and nobody hears it, is it still an opera? (laughs) 